lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Good night, garden. We're saying goodbye to our 2017 gardens, and I'm sharing my final punch list to help you have a fantastic finale in your own garden, which is really the best way that you can set your 2018 garden up for success. My fantastic fall finale garden punch list. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. Well, first, I'd like to start out by saying thank you for listening to the Still Growing Podcast this week. Whether you're a brand new listener or a returning listener, it's all good and welcome to you and thank you for being here. And I always start out every show by saying I hope that you listen to many different gardening podcasts. First and foremost, because it's such a wonderful way to grow and learn as a gardener. But second of all, It's a way to make sure that there are many gardening podcasts for you to listen to. So keep listening. Check out new shows from time to time. Don't forget to go back into the search bar in whatever app you're using to listen to podcasts and search for terms like garden or gardening and see if new shows don't pop up in the search results. This week, I had a chance to listen to Jane Perrone's latest episode. She is the podcast producer of the On the Ledge podcast, which is devoted to houseplants. And in episode 22, her latest episode, she did a really nice job with a houseplant Q&A special that I thought was really worth the time. I learned a ton. So I'd encourage you to go check that out. Jane Perrone's On the Ledge podcast. With regard to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join the listener community for this show. It's a free private Facebook group that I host for listeners of the show. And these folks are made up of gardeners of all skill levels and locations. And you can find it very easily on Facebook just by typing in the name of our group into the search bar. Just search for Still Growing Podcast Group. And the listener community will just show up at the top of the search results and then just request to join. Now, there are a number of benefits that you enjoy by joining the group. First, you'll get all of the articles that I curate for the group throughout the week. It will just pop up on your Facebook feed. Second, the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any show giveaways. In fact, last week's guest, Cheryl Moore Goff's book called The Complete Guide to Saving Seeds, 322 Vegetables, Herbs, Fruits, Flowers, Trees, and Shrubs, is on its way to a lucky listener from the listener community, and that winner is Sonia Bradley. So congratulations, Sonia. This will be announced in the group this week. And I know you're going to really enjoy that copy of Cheryl Moore Goff's book. So congratulations and enjoy. Winning giveaways is just one of the many perks of being in the listener community. 
Another perk is that you get to interact with great guests that have been on the show, like Kylie Bomley. Kylie was on a few episodes ago, back in episode 589. It's been one of the most popular episodes this year. And it was all about saving the monarch. So if you have any monarch questions, questions about raising caterpillars, questions about the migration, questions about bringing caterpillars inside and raising them, Kylie is a tremendous resource for that. And then finally, there is no spam in this group. The content that I share with the listener community is something I work very hard to make sure is helpful and worthwhile for you. Everything I post is curated with you in mind to help you and your garden grow. Plus, it's free and easy to join. So the next time you're in Facebook, just search for Still Growing Podcast Group and then request to join. I'd love to meet you in the group. Well, with that, it's time to welcome some new members to our group. John Anderson, Elizabeth Harper, Teresa Spate, Melissa Steed, Nancy Kirkpatrick, Bryn Iselli, Kylie Bomley, Francis Holenkamp, Barbara Pleasant, Rohit Patel, Jody Bryan Thompson, Carrie Faber, and Kimberly Dahlbeck. Welcome, you guys. My listener advisory board members help me handle all of the requests to join the group. And this week, Patricia Chandler Newport welcomed Lisa Lane. And both these gals are from Detroit. So I love what Patricia wrote here. She said, welcome Lisa Lane from one Metro Detroit member to another. So that was great. There was a lot of activity in the group this week. I'll just share a few highlights with you. John Brian Silverio shared his garden evolution that happened this year. And one thing that happened to John that I think happens to a lot of us is that once you start gardening with raised beds, it becomes addictive and you usually can't have just one. And that's what John shared. He shared a great post of his spanking new raised garden beds. They look great this year. And he said, raised beds are like weeds. They just pop out everywhere. My lawn's getting smaller. I planted crimson clover on most of my raised beds. I still have lettuce and veggies growing in some of them. And then he has these wonderful hoops that he's installed, of course, for row cover in shade cloth, which helps extend his season. And that's great. Listener Danny Perkins shared some really beautiful pictures this past month of his giant cosmos. They were blooming. They were this beautiful orange. And they attracted a lot of attention because they were very tall. Danny reported that some of them were 10 feet tall and that they had set lots of buds. So you had lots of blooms, super high in the garden, very beautiful. And when the wind blew, they kind of swayed in the wind. Danny took a video of that and then posted that. And the pollinators loved them, too, because there, there was a monarch in his video. So they were a hit. And I know at least one listener was hoping that Danny was saving some seed because they wanted to give this a try in their own garden next year. So giant cosmos, if you're looking for something tall in your garden. Then Danny posted one other incredible image this week, and it was a picture of a mama spider with all of her little babies out for a stroll in the garden. And it turns out this was a green lynx spider. 
And just as soon as this got identified, then I started seeing some garden friends from all over that part of the United States, the southeastern part of the United States, sharing pictures of green lynx spiders in their garden. So they must have been very active toward the end of October. Then listener Julie Lang had a question. She was looking for pointers on her still-potted perennials. So she had a few perennials that she just hadn't gotten in the ground. This was back in the middle of October, and she was wondering, what's the rule? What is her deadline for getting these things in the ground, or had she missed her deadline? Patricia Chandler Newport, uh, who runs her own landscaping business, replied to this question, and I agree with her completely. She said, plant any time up until a hard frost, which if Julie in Michigan is experiencing the same kind of weather we're having in Minnesota, just a little bit further west, she will be experiencing some pretty cold temperatures this weekend. And so hopefully Julie's had a chance to get those potted perennials in the ground and then covered with mulch before this big cold snap starts to hit. There was one hot topic that came up in our listener community this past week, and it was spurred on by a question that was posed by listener Tim Elias. He wrote, I live in Northern California, and I've been thinking about fire-resistant plants I could use to protect my home and garden. Any thoughts? Sarah Bedient wrote in. She had a good website as a reference, firewise.org, for placement ideas. That's a very helpful website. And then Tim wrote that he was thinking more along the lines of removing very flammable plants, like eucalyptus trees, and planting less flammable ones. With enough plants like stone crop, Tim thought he could make an area that would take more heat to cross. Tim likes to cut the weeds down, which helps remove a lot of potential fuel for fires, but he was really looking to replace the weeds with an evergreen that is less likely to be combustible. And Sarah had another good tip here. She said, the key to slowing the fire is to have the crown of your trees high enough so it burns the bottom of the tree and not into the crown. Listener Mara Palaise offered this. She said, succulents are cheap and easy living fire break. They don't burn so much as cook because they're filled with water. Of course, mulching with rock and gravel is also helpful. And then I found two good resources for Tim. One is called Fire Retardant Plants. This was from a website out of Australia called plantsandlandscapes.com. And then there was an excellent resource from Davy Tree Company. And the title of this blog post was Fireproof Landscapes with Fire-Resistant Plants, Trees, and Shrubs. Now, this was a post that was shared on the Davy website back in August of this year. And what I really appreciated about this post is that they actually made some specific plant recommendations. So these are fire-resistant plants per the Davy website. Here's what they suggest. Coneflower, cooking sage, coral bells, daylily, fescue, hens and chicks, poppies, woolly thyme, stonecrop, and yarrow. For shrubs, they recommend golden currant, heather, honeysuckle, lilac, ocean spray, raspberry, roses, Russian sage, 
wax flower, and yucca. And then fire-resistant trees that made the list include black oak, cherry, crabapple, hawthorn, honey locust, maple, poplar, quaking aspen, and river birch. I really liked this resource. And I shared it in the listener community in the Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you'd like to check it out for yourself, no need to take notes or track down this link. Just head on over to the Facebook group and search for fire and this post will pop up. In listener love, listener John Ryan wrote in that he was listening to the podcast while he gardened this week. Listener Rebecca Stoner Kurtz wrote in and shared that she loved the podcast on stone. That was the podcast that I did with Jan Johnson on her book, The Spirit of Stone, back in episode 588. Rebecca wrote, Kentucky has so many stone walls picked from the fields. They're beautiful and represent labors of love to clear the fields. And then she wrote, thanks to Jan Johnson, I will buy her book, The Spirit of Stone. Great podcast. Thank you. And then listener Esther DeWaters made my week because she wrote in and said, my husband might forbid me to listen to any more of your shows when he sees all of the additions to my garden list for next year. More basil, some milkweed, extra tomatoes, several books. My budget complains when your podcast comes on, but my garden doesn't. Oh, I just loved that, Esther. So thanks for writing in. That was great. Anyway, I love hearing from you guys about what's going on in your garden. And the show also has a phone number. So if you have suggestions or feedback or questions for me, definitely feel free to call the show. The number is 865-333-GROW or 865 333 Four seven six nine. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I have shared over the past week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group, and it's made up of a dozen different segments. Now, what's really nice about this for you is that you get to stay pretty informed about the latest news in horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week, and you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast group. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, you don't need to take notes. You don't need to track down links or search for things. Just head on over to the group and join. It will all be there. All right, let's kick things off with the guest update. Past guest Pam Pennick of the Water Saving Garden, she was featured back in episode 555, wrote a couple of great posts on her blog over at Digging. The first one that caught my eye was her feature on the exhibit going on right now at the Dallas Arboretum. They always do a fabulous pumpkin exhibit, and this year... They did a Land of Oz theme at their annual Pumpkin Village at the Arboretum. 
So there were pumpkin houses that represented Auntie M's house and the Wicked Witch's Castle and the Emerald City. And Pam did a great write-up of this on her blog. Beautiful images here. They really did a great job. They've got the Tin Man, the Lion, the Scarecrow, the whole shebang, and it looks fantastic. Then another great post that Pam wrote is about foliage architecture and art on Rice University campus, which happens to be Pam's alma mater in Houston. And I think my favorite feature that Pam discussed in this post is this contemporary trough fountain that's on the campus. It's really beautiful. If you're thinking of installing a trough fountain, you're going to want to check this out. So again, Pam's blog, Digging, over at Pennick.net. In sustainability this week, a first-time beekeeper shared his experience. This was in a blog post out of New Zealand, and this was a post written by a beekeeper that had taken a course back in 2014 and then started trying his hand at beekeeping. Now, what I thought was very interesting about this was that from his pictures, you can tell that his hives are placed in an environment where at certain times, extra high tides occur and his hives can be surrounded by water. So not your typical beehive environment, but the bees are high enough where they're not submerged. The hives are not submerged. It looks like he has them elevated on pallets. So he's doing the right thing here, elevating the hives high enough off the ground so that water doesn't get into the hive. Very interesting and overall great post from someone who is new to the world of beekeeping. In continuing ed, the word of the day was cupule. If you think about an acorn, the little hat on top of the acorn is called a cupule. That made continuing ed this week. Then vinepair.com created a very nice illustrated guide to the most important wine soils that you should know. So kind of creating an infographic here. In fact, there's a new guide out called The Dirty Guide to Wine, and it explores the complexities of soil and its impact on wine. So that's what inspired the author of this blog post, Courtney Sheasel, to create this infographic on soil types for wine growing. In the how-to DIY segment was a creative how-to DIY for making a Thanksgiving sign. This was featured over at the blog post Christine DeBeer, one of my favorite blogs. And I love her ingenious DIYs. Here she took some simple wire and created the word thanks and then surrounded it with little foraged treasures from the garden before taking pictures of it. It was just beautiful and so creative. In the plant spotlight is the 2018 perennial plant of the year. And I'm talking about Allium Millennium, the butterfly magnet that was selected by the PPA membership as the 2018 plant of the year. And I'll be talking about this later in the show, but Allium are definitely on my fall finale punch list as one of the last things I do in the garden. Planting bulbs and Allium Millennium is on my list and in my basket of bulbs to plant this year. 
All right, in the news, Florette Farm is having an exciting time. They just bought a farm, so bigger things are to come from them. And there was a fun post over at learner.org which shared peak migration as the monarchs entered Texas. Observers in Texas this year are reporting a strong migration. In fact, where the leaves are falling off the trees, the butterflies are still flying. And some of the best pictures showed these trees that are losing their leaves and in their place are roosting monarchs on their way down to Mexico. One of the most popular posts that I shared in the group this past week had to do with the new gardening zones for Europe, the United States, Canada, China, Japan, and Australia. With the recently updated zones, more than 80 million gardeners will find themselves declared a half zone warmer when they're out in their gardens next year. And in case you're wondering, this is the first update to the Gardening Zones map since 1990. Finally, in the news, I just love October, if for no other reason than to see all of the news articles about the giant pumpkins and giant gourd festivals all over the world. There was a great article about this featured in The Guardian in October. The UK's top grower once had a village up in arms about the size of his produce, but now he's the rock star of the competitive fruit and vegetable world. And of course, I'm talking about Ian Patton when he started growing his giant pumpkins. And this is serious stuff. His competitors were accusing him of cheating and people were really up in arms. But now it's been almost a dozen years since Ian's been entering the competition Ian and his twin brother, Stuart, have been raising pumpkins as a hobby since the age of nine. And this was my favorite excerpt about some of their experiences as massive pumpkin growers. Here's what it said. They've earned two Blue Peter badges for hollowing out pumpkins and letting some presenters use them as motorboats in an attempt to cross a river. Plus, while waiting in the green room of the one show, Frank Skinner was so overawed by their huge gourd that he whipped out a ukulele and wrote a song on the spot. Anyway, it's hard to believe sometimes all the links people will go to to grow giant pumpkins, but I love reading about it. In the Dream guest segment is Willow Weaver, Julia Clark. And I discovered Julia after learning about the willow weaving classes that are available at Kew Gardens. These took place during the month of October. And I think it would be fascinating to talk to Julia about the skill and art of willow weaving. In Science This Week was kind of an ooky post that I thought was perfect for October. It was a little gruesome, some of the pictures, but it is also displaying a real threat to caterpillars and butterflies. And of course, I'm talking about parasitic wasps. The title of this article was called Body Snatchers, Eaten Alive by Parasitic Wasps. 
And the images were very graphic, showing the very dark world of parasitic wasps and the damage they can do to caterpillars and butterflies, how they totally take over the bodies of these living caterpillars. It's both fascinating and gruesome at the same time. In shopping this week, past guest Barbara Pleasant shared a tip on a cookbook that she discovered that was on sale on Amazon for $1.99. In fact, Barbara wrote, I love to read cookbooks, so I look for flash sales on great volumes because I own plenty already, and I love things that I can enjoy as ebooks." And so she shared that Ruth Reichel's My Kitchen Year was available for $1.99 on Amazon in ebook format. That was a great tip. And then also, just as a follow-up to a shopping tip I had from a few weeks ago, and that was about the cookbook called Moro East. And my copy arrived this week, and I have fallen in love with this cookbook. The cover is so beautiful, and the inside is so interesting because, of course, the authors are sharing what they do with their garden harvest from their allotment garden. I have fallen in love with this cookbook. So again, if you're looking for a special Christmas present for a gardener in your life, they would love this cookbook. And you can find used copies on Amazon for under $8. Such a buy. Great bargain. In recipes this week was a great cauliflower mac and cheese recipe from thekitchen.com. And when I introduced this post, I said, I'm seeing cauliflower in recipes everywhere. And this is so true. In fact, this week I bought a bag of cauliflower rice to experiment with with the kids. And it went over so well that I now have like three or four bags of it in my fridge. But I love cauliflower rice. So if you haven't tried that, check it out. You can either make it yourself by spiralizing a head of cauliflower or you can get it in bags already taken care of, already turned into those tiny little cauliflower nuggets at Costco for not very much. And I really, really like using it in the kitchen. And then the kitchen also shared a great recipe for a spaghetti squash shakshuka recipe. This one is visually a stunner. You make it in one skillet. And shakshuka is a brunch superstar. People love it. And what it is, is basically poached eggs that are floating around in a spiced tomato sauce with plenty of herbs and feta cheese. And then you add spaghetti squash to the mix in this particular recipe. And the reviewer said that this is an ideal way to use spaghetti squash instead of just using it as a substitute for noodles. She liked it in this shakshuka recipe because it's not trying to be pasta with sauce. It's just a great way to get some extra veggies into your breakfast. And I love the presentation on this one. In inspiration, listener Deb Williams shared some images from her trip to Tucson. She recently visited a park in East Tucson near the Catalina Mountains So Deborah shared images from this gorgeous park with lots of cactus, lots of mesquite trees, and even a woodpecker or two. 
And then I found a home on apartment therapy that I found especially inspiring to gardeners. This was a very unique home. The title of the post was called Tour a Rustic Modern Boho Home in Buenos Aires. And I thought what they did with the backyard, the very small backyard, was ingenious because they raised up the backyard garden using debris from construction to elevate the entire gardening surface. So that was very unique. And then as you're clicking through the images of this magnificent house, just wait till you get to see the green roof terrace. So you see a ladder that goes up through the ceiling and you end up on this gorgeous green roof terrace where they have a portion dedicated to composting organics. There's beautiful wild greenery growing and they filled the entire structure with soil and then let nature do the rest. It was really a charming and clever use of space. And then finally, an inspiration. When I introduced this post, I said pure escapism here. We get a chance to check out Sting and Trudy's Garden, the musician Sting. This was featured in the Telegraph. This garden has a fantastical quality. It's a showstopper, a scene stealer. It's amazing. All right. In the quote segment this week, I wanted to find a poem that had to do with putting the garden to bed, since that's the theme of today's show. And I could not find one that I really liked. So I decided to do a play on Goodnight Moon by Margaret Wise Brown and gardenize this poem. So that's what I did. Here we go. Goodnight Garden. In the great green garden, there was a fountain and a little blue shed and a painting of Madame Monet by the flower bed. And there were 300 ants on the peony plants and two little vines and a cactus with spines and a thriller in a pot and a greenhouse hot and a rake and a hoe and an old screened gazebo and a quiet old gardener who was whispering, grow. Good night, garden. Good night, fence. Good night, deer jumping over the fence. Good night, climber with the jasmine scent. Good night, bird bath. Good night, stone path. Good night, daffodil. And good night, cranes bill. Good night, little seeds. And good night, weeds. Good night, arbor. And good night, trees. Good night, flowers. Good night, bees. And good night, perennials buried in leaves. Good night, lilies. Good night, roses fair. Good night, gardens everywhere. Well, that's it for the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show. 
We're saying an official goodbye to our 2017 gardens, and I'm sharing with you my final punch list to help you have a fantastic finale in your own garden, which is really one of the very best ways that you can set your 2018 garden up for success, ending with a strong finish. So the nights are drawing in. If you're in a northern climate, the temperatures are plummeting. Here in Minnesota, we're getting ready for our very first snow event this weekend. And within a few weeks, we'll be seeing daylight savings time kick in as well. So we've entered that season of cold evenings. The leaves have all fallen. And whenever you have a big snow event on the horizon, you will see a flurry of activity right up until the snow flies of people trying to winterize and get ready to put their garden to bed. And the thing about that last visit to the garden is that if you do a good job of tidying up and putting things away and addressing issues in your garden, you can just set your spring up to be a much more enjoyable and exciting experience. It's always good to have a plan for every season, and that last visit to the garden is no exception. So as I was creating my own final punch list for my garden... I thought, you know what, I'm going to share this with you guys because maybe it will inspire you to approach that last time in the garden a little bit differently. And I always like to say that that first visit that you spend in your garden in the spring tells you an awful lot about that last visit that you paid your garden in the fall before winter hit. So I like to make that last work week in the garden something very deliberate, very strategic, and very impactful. And I think that's why I especially love reading articles that talk about autumn and the fall as being a time of beginning. In fact, it reminds me of this book on transition and change that I read many years ago, and it talked about how to see the process of change really starting with an ending, because endings really spur on the changes and transitions that we need to make in all aspects of our lives, and the garden is no different. So my very first step during my last week in the garden is to go out with my camera and take pictures, take tons of images of my fall garden. How did my garden look at the finish line at the very end of the year? What overwhelmed me? What was I not able to handle or keep up with? What performed well? What do I want more of? What surpassed my expectations? What let me down? Fall is such a wonderful time to reflect on the changes that we need to make in our gardens for next year. And to me, there's something about fall that makes that particularly come into focus. I think in the spring, my judgment can get clouded by my excitement and my enthusiasm and my eagerness to get back into the garden. 
But in the fall, there is a realism and a fatigue and I think an appreciation for the garden that can only come after working in the garden for a season. My perceptions of my garden in fall are not knee-jerk reactions. They're based on empirical evidence of what's transpired during this past growing season. So I feel like I'm more measured and more practical in my view of my garden, its strengths and its weaknesses. So the pictures that I'm taking tell the story, show the images, but even more so, my reaction to those images is something I want to definitely spend some time capturing this week. And so I do that in a simple garden journal, and I do a very basic rating system. I have all of my garden beds on the perimeter of my property numbered and named, and I go through and rank them on a scale of 1 to 10, how pleased I am, how I feel about that garden overall. And then I get specific. So if that garden is not a 10 in my mind, what is stopping it from being a 10, a perfect 10? Is it a weed issue? Is it a pest issue? Is it a hassle issue? All of these things I factor in to the rating that I give that garden, that particular part of my garden. I take those feelings and perceptions very seriously, and I transform those into action items for spring. The gardens that have the highest ranking will probably get the least attention in the spring, but the gardens that have the lowest rankings, those are the beds that are going to get priority, whether I'm transplanting or moving or starting over, solarizing that bed. But my final week in the garden always begins with the pictures because without the pictures, I might miss something. So the pictures are very important to me. And you know, the other wonderful thing about taking pictures of your garden in fall, either before your tidy up or even after your tidy up, is that you can look at your garden and your garden beds in different zones in your garden and immediately tell which areas of your garden are short on structure. It's just so much more obvious in the fall. You can see it. And if you can't see it in the fall, you can certainly see it in the winter. Although it's often not as fun to go out and take pictures of your garden when it's 20 below. So here in Minnesota, I always tell people to do it after the leaves are off the trees and after you've done some tidy up you can begin to see where you need more structure, where you need more shrubs or trees or hardscape items like rock and fencing, things of that nature. All right. The second thing I like to do is start my Christmas list. Now, this may sound a little corny, but hear me out here. I learned a long time ago that the kids each want to get me something for Christmas and I'd much rather have them get me something I would actually use and enjoy in my garden than have them go and get me something that's not practical or something that I just wouldn't enjoy. So I use this last week in the garden as my way of coming up with my Christmas list. So in my garden journal, that's exactly what I do. I have a little list. It just says Christmas list. 
And I start to go through my garden and make an inventory of things that I regularly use and need that I might need to replenish. So for instance, garden gloves, tools in the garden, containers, or even practical items like twine or wire, things I regularly use in the garden, those can go on my Christmas list. The third thing I'd like to do is to gather up my pots, my containers into one area. You know, by doing this, I'm able to definitely spot the containers that don't seem to fit. It's crazy how over the summer you can accumulate containers and pots from other gardeners or from garage sales or thrift stores, containers that you fell in love with in the moment. And then when you see them all together, you can see the sore thumbs really sticking out. I say, get those babies out of there, donate them, let someone else find them and fall in love with them. But if they're not working in your garden, fall is a great time to have a very discerning eye on what is working and what is not working in your garden. I also love to tell people that fall is a wonderful time to get on Craigslist and find unusual items for your garden. So the fourth thing I'd tell you to consider is jumping on Craigslist and seeing if you can't score a last-minute deal for your garden for next year. And something I love to tell new gardeners to consider getting is a kitchen baker's rack. I'm talking about the iron kitchen baker's racks that you'll see on Craigslist. Here in Minnesota, you might find a pretty decent baker's rack anywhere between $15 and $40. They're really not that expensive, but they're great to use in the garden. And I have a baker's rack out in my garden that I use to stock all of my terracotta pottery. And I love it. It's perfect. So consider that. Of course, number five is cleaning up my garden beds. Once I have cleared and cut back my borders, especially, I love to focus on the edges. The next thing I do is focus on what is no longer life-giving to me. These are the plants that as I've gone through my garden throughout the season, I kind of grumble about. Oh, this goat's beard. Why do I have this goat's beard? It's mostly foliage. When it's blooming, I never see it blooming in this side of the garden. I grumble about it all the time. This year, it was time to take it out. And I can do that now in the fall because I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm ready to let it go. In the spring, I'm going to feel bad for it. It's going to be blooming. I'll think, oh, you can deal with it. But these kinds of tough decisions are often easier for me to make in the fall. So give that a try if you have a tough time parting with any plants. So I clear and cut back my borders. I take a look at what is not life-giving to me anymore, what I don't want my future self to have to deal with in the garden. I'm going to spare my future self this misery and take care of it now. And usually in much quicker fashion, because with the snow deadline looming, I am very motivated to just get out there and make hay while, while the sun shines. There's no messing around in this final week in the garden. 
you know, next year, one of the things I was so inspired by during my time in the DC Garden Bloggers Fling was this amazing cutting garden that we saw at Hillwood. And I know from looking at this garden that it's important to have wonderful rows and flowers that are supported by netting and stakes. So for me to do this, I needed to get very serious about redoing some of my garden beds. And that started this past week in my garden. I took down two huge garden beds, first with a hedge trimmer, just ruthlessly went through this bed with a hedge trimmer. And then I hauled my lawnmower over there, my mulching lawnmower, and just went to town on this bed. It saved my arm and my brand new shoulder, my brand new repaired shoulder, tons of work. It made quick work of this area of the garden. And now when I come out in the spring, I'll be ready to start my cutting garden. Now, one of my plants that I always make sure to cut back in the fall, no matter what, is my iris. And the reason you might want to strongly consider cutting back your iris foliage is to avoid the iris borer. And here's why this strategy works well. Because the iris borer moth lays the eggs for next year's iris borers in the fall on the foliage. And those eggs are just going to sit on those iris leaves until spring. And then just like everything else in the garden, they're going to wake up and they are going to start to go crazy on your iris. So if you do what I do and cut that iris foliage back, you eliminate this problem altogether because you are getting rid of the iris borer eggs. Now, this is one instance where I do not chop and drop, where I do not let those leaves just go back into the garden. Those babies got to go in the trash. The other perennials I pay extra attention to are any perennials that bloom in the spring. And of course, I'm talking about things like my peonies. In fact, I always love to tell the story of my spring blooming peonies, which I adore. And if I fail to do a good job of cutting them back in the fall and then attempt it in the spring, I almost always wreck those new shoots on the peony because they're so tightly connected to those old stems. So don't do what I did a couple of years in a row and forget to chop my peonies back. Because if you attempt it in the spring, that new growth is so securely attached to those old stems and it seems to be so tender and so brittle, it's very easy to wreck your new shoots. So do it now and your future self will thank you. So when it comes to other spring blooming perennials that I cut down, that would include dianthus, columbine. I generally cut back my black-eyed Susans and my flocks, things that I don't want to spread all over my garden. And then, as I said, definitely use things like your hedge trimmer to help you make quick work in the garden this week. And then finally, when I have all of the things taken down that I no longer want in the garden or the edges cleared up, that's when I add as much organic matter as I possibly can to enrich the soil and help suppress the weeds. 
So top dressing the soil with compost is another job. This year, Will got a brand new trailer for his lawn mowing business. And one of the perks of having a trailer is, of course, having someone who can go to the hardware store and pick up your compost for you. So that's what we did. And the boys helped me and we unloaded it and they set the bags of compost all over the garden. That made my job so much easier because the compost was sitting right outside each of my beds. So easy. That was fun. Number seven is something I read about in a garden chores article, and I wish I could source it because I'd love to give them credit, but I cannot find the article. So let me tell you what this tip is, and then if you run across it, let me know because I'd love to give them credit for this. But this was a garden chores article that I read, and they suggested placing a net over your water feature. So if you have a pond or a a pondless river like what I have, you put some type of netting over the top of that, and that eliminates the cleanup in the spring where you have to take all of the leaves and debris that fall in that area over the last half of the fall and over the winter time. And I loved this idea. So in this case, I did what... Barbara Pleasant suggested, and I just used wedding netting very inexpensively. We have one of the biggest fabric stores in the Midwest, like it's a huge outlet, and it's very near Maple Grove. And I just went over there and bought a huge roll of wedding netting, and then I positioned it over my pond. And I'm tickled to try this and then report back to you in the spring. So that was definitely on my fall finale punch list this week. Another thing I thought was fun to do with the kids was we made these little bug hotel bundles. So kind of like when you see those little bundles of cinnamon sticks, as I was chopping down some of my perennials, I saved some of the longer stems to make these little bundles So we took the stems and then we just wrapped twine around them and dropped them in the garden, tucked them around the garden as almost like decoration, I would say. But they were adorable. And this was probably one of the more sweet and fun activities we did as we put the garden to bed this past week. So, you know, stems that are hollow, like your hosta shoots that come up, those blooms, those stems are all hollow My lovage stems were definitely hollow. There are just some that work better than others. But even if the stems aren't hollow, the bugs will still crawl in between each of the stems. So there's plenty of space in these little bundles that insects would love to make their home in over the winter. All right, number nine was taking care of my kitchen garden. And here specifically, I'm talking about my herbs. Now, there are tender herbs like basil, like parsley, and mint that cannot handle the freezing temperatures. So those I do a final harvest on. In the case of my basil, I had a lot of it that had still bolted, and I just collected the seeds from that. And I'll be growing basil indoors 
and primarily harvesting it as a microgreen. I'm not going to attempt to grow full-grown basil in my kitchen over the winter. That's just not going to work. I don't have enough sun. But the microgreens will be just fine, and they're just as flavorful. Now, even here in Minnesota, with this first blast of cold, things like rosemary and thyme can be left in the garden. And even if it gets super cold, I always like to say God freeze dries it for me. And I can go out and harvest that from my outdoor refrigerator, basically, and enjoy those herbs well through the holiday season, which is, in fact, how I often end up harvesting my rosemary. It's right on my deck. And of course, I use it with my holiday cooking for Thanksgiving and Christmas, especially. Job number 10 is to clean off the trellises. I have a lot of trellises. I have tons of climbers. I love them all. But it's never fun to do that cleanup in the spring. First of all, when you're cleaning your trellises off in the spring, the vines and the leaves and other bits and pieces kind of disintegrate in your hand, and they start to fly all over the garden. It can be a mess in no time. In the fall, when things are still green, when they're less brittle, it's a lot easier to clean these things up. You can get bigger chunks, I find. You can get those things off the trellis, and it just gives that fresh, clean start that you want in the spring on your trellises. And then don't forget, as your plants are dying back, as you're cleaning off your trellis, you can see what needs to be repaired, what needs to be painted. You can see all of those structures more clearly. So if it needs some TLC come spring, you already know because you've made a note of it in your notebook during this final punch list that you're completing in the fall. All right, number 11 on my punch list was my paths, my garden paths. In fact, I often say that I spend almost as much time on my garden paths as I do in my garden beds. In fact, this year, I think I even spent more time on the paths with my shoulder being an issue for me this summer as I was doing so much of my recovery. I allowed things to creep into the paths maybe a little bit more than I have in the past. So when it came time for my final tidy up, I really paid for that this fall. But it's important to start fresh in the spring. So I did a ton of path tidy up and I top dressed my paths with the gravel. In areas where I have stone, I top dressed my paths with the polymeric sand. This is just such a perfect time of year to take care of things like that. And in the fall, with all of the leaf matter that's flying about, I always feel like the garden is finished when the paths are clear of that, when my porch is cleaned off, when there are no leaves or branches or wayward plant material coming into those transition spaces. It just makes everything look so much more tidy. Then number 12 for me is to get a little strategic about where I'm spending my time. And by this, I mean that I tend to focus more on areas that I can see from inside my house. So my porch, my deck, my eastern garden that I can see through our windows and our family room and in our dining room, those are high priority areas for me to deal with 
in that final fall walkthrough. And when I don't do it, it drives me crazy because I can see it from inside the house all through the winter. So I learned many years ago, I let the Western garden go until the very last thing. I take care of my high priority areas first. Number 13 on my list was to polyurethane my ironwork. This is important because a Minnesota winter can be awfully hard on your ironwork, on things like birdhouses, any structures in your garden. So it's always good to give those things an extra coat of protection. Number 14 was to do just a general tidy up on things like hoses and sprayers. I no longer leave my sprayers out, even if I think there's no water in them. They invariably do have water in them and they will freeze and then come spring, your sprayers don't work. So those things all come in the heated garage. Number 15 on my list was something I was very, very passionate about this summer because I brought out more houseplants than ever under my deck. And that was to create a dedicated houseplant haven for my houseplants when I bring them out next spring. I didn't want to be running around trying to figure out where my houseplants were going to go, and I didn't want them as scattered through the garden. So I wanted to create this dedicated area for my houseplants. I'm calling it my houseplant haven. It's under my deck. Certain areas will get dappled sun. Certain areas will get no direct sun. It's going to be perfect for my houseplants, but it required clearing a path to get there, clearing out some plants, and then installing hooks so that I can hang things like macrame hangers for some pots. I scored some plant stands on Craigslist that I can just keep outside year long. So instead of having to bring my plant stands outside, I can leave plant stands in the house and have plant stands outside of the house. And then the only thing I have to do is transfer the plants. This is going to save me tons of cleanup on the hardware side for bringing things in and out of the house. It'll go much smoother, and I'm very excited to bring my houseplants out to my houseplant haven next spring. Number 16 for me was really to look at garden structures, things like garden furniture, bird baths, feeders. And what I did here was really look at these pieces with a discerning eye. Sometimes I end up with these pieces that I feel sorry for and I kind of limp along with them and keep repairing them and just cannot give up the ghost. And some of them just really need to go. So that's what I did a lot of this week. And again, Will's trailer came in handy. But we needed to just clear out some of this garden furniture that we've had for so many years that has been out in the elements for easily over a decade. And it was just time to say goodbye. Things like hammocks and my swing chairs that I use all of the time, those items have to come in. If you leave any type of rope or wicker out facing the elements over the winter, you'll be sorry in the spring because it just rots so easily. So all of our rope items go in a huge storage bin out by the swing set, and my wicker is protected on the front porch. But again, 
in much the same way as I can look at garden plants that are no longer life-giving to me and I can make those tough decisions in the fall, I seem to be able to do a better job of that with garden furniture this time of year as well. You know, you might remember that earlier this spring, I fell in love with this image of this outdoor living space that had this green turf grass and then this beautiful black and white fabric combination on all of the garden furniture. Well, I got halfway there. I installed not green turf, but I found this great green carpeting material at Lowe's, and I bought two huge sections and covered my back deck, and it looked great. But then I made the fatal mistake of hanging on to some red cushions that I put on my garden furniture out there. And so I was going with a 4th of July theme. This is before I stumbled on the green carpeting. And unfortunately, all summer, I looked at furniture that was sitting on top of this green carpeting that had red cushions with 4th of July theme on top of it, and it just did not work. It looked like Christmas gone astray because I had the green carpeting and then the red cushions. It was not at all the look that I was going for. So those red cushions got deep sixed this week. And now next spring, I'll be looking on Amazon for some basic black cushions to put on my outdoor furniture and really pull that look together that I have in my mind's eye. So number 17 had to do with dealing with outdoor cushions, figuring out which ones needed to go, which ones should be replaced, which ones were good that need to be protected or brought in so that they can be used again another year. And then finally, outdoor curtains. So I installed outdoor curtains on my front porch, which I absolutely love. It was one of my favorite additions to my front porch a few years ago. But it was time for them to get washed, and I've never done that. So I washed them up. They washed beautifully. This was an outdoor fabric, and now they're ready to go for a whole nother season. I was really pleased, really tickled with how well they cleaned up. Number 18 is something I just really enjoy doing, and that is taking an inventory of my garden gloves. I am a fan of garden gloves. I love to have a lot of them. I use them every time I'm out in the garden. I do not go into my garden and start working without gloves. I think primarily because I had a really bad rose thorn injury a number of years ago. So I always protect my hands. I like to keep a big basket of gloves handy in case one of the kids comes along and wants to help me in the garden. So I have a basket for clean garden gloves, I have a basket for dirty garden gloves, and then my final basket is for my longer gloves, the gloves that go up to almost my elbow, and these are my rose gardening gloves. Anyway, by the end of the season, I'll have some mismatches or some missing gloves or some gloves where I had to throw one of them away. And you know how if some of them have sat throughout the year, or even if you've used them, they kind of get brittle. They just get old. You need to throw them out. Well, that's an activity that I love to do in the fall. So I'll go through my gloves. I throw them all down the chute. I wash them all up. And then as I'm putting them together, I'm trying them on. If they're too tight or they're brittle or they're falling apart, out they go. And gardening gloves are almost always on that Christmas wish list that I have for the kids. 
Number 19 is to really go through my garden and look at things like my ironwork and my bird feeders and my bird baths and think about where I want those things positioned during the winter. The ground is frozen anyway in Minnesota, so sometimes it makes more sense to reposition something even over an area where something's going to come up in the spring. And then when I go out in the spring, I quickly move it off of that area so the plants or the perennials that are below ground can come up and not be obstructed. But I definitely have a few pieces that I move this time of year. I'll cut the perennial way back. And then I might put something like a topiary, an iron topiary, or a container, or a fountain, something that I'm going to use in a seasonal fashion. And what this allows me to do is really see my garden through that holiday lens. So the perennials are gone anyway, just because they kind of hold that place for you in your mind's eye, even though they're gone, you have complete liberty to put something over the top of those so that you can have structure in that space during the long winter. It's one of my favorite things. So I look at things like where I want my bird feeders to be, I'll have bird feeders in places where I would definitely not have them during the summer. And in many cases, I'm looking to make them very easy access so that I can get to them and not have to trudge through the snow. This year, I've already purchased a heated dog dish so that I can have some warm water, some water for the birds on my deck. I'm looking forward to that. Number 21, I'm starting to get into more of the administrative side of things I do for my garden, but right now is a great time while you're surfing around online to check out seed catalogs and make sure you're on their list. Often it's just as simple as jumping on and requesting a seed catalog, but you don't want to wait until they're all out of them. So definitely get your name, your email, on their list so that you can get the seed catalogs in your mailbox. Number 22 is to contact contractors you're going to need in the spring. So people who work on fences or stonescaping or landscapers or patio builders or big structures like arbors and gazebos, things of that nature. If you need these professionals, don't wait till February. Call them now and say you want to be top on their list. And then put a little reminder in your phone or in your calendar to call them again after Christmas and then call them again in March and just firm up the fact that you're first on their schedule. If you have something like a graduation or a wedding or some type of family gathering, a family reunion that's happening in June or July next year, you definitely want to do this. So it's never too early to get on their radar. These guys get so busy, and the further along you go in the year, the farther behind they fall in terms of getting to their next customer or their next job. Number 23 is hitting up the farmer's market. I learned this tip from Megan Kane, the creative vegetable gardener. Megan was featured back in episode 557, and I love what she told me. She reminded me that now is a wonderful time of year to buy up things like squashes and different produce that maybe didn't perform well in your own garden, or maybe you didn't plant at all, but you want that produce. 
Well, if it stores well, or if you can process it in such a way that you can stockpile it, why not? And with squashes, I love to make squash soup. So I'll go out and buy 20, 30, 40 squash from the farmer's market this time of year when it's not very expensive and just come home and puree it and make squash soup and store that away through the winter. I love that. Number 24 is to go out and check for seed packet bargains. In this case, I'm going to be buying seed for things that I know will bloom and grow in this area fairly easily. Things like Cleome, Love in a Mist, Nasturtiums, Cosmos, things like that. I know from my interview with Cheryl Moore Goff, just from last week's episode, that those seed packets are viable for more than just one year, certainly. So when they go on sale this time of year, I like to buy up. Then, of course, it's time to plant spring flowering bulbs. This year, I focused on allium and daffodil. So I decided to devote my time to the high impact of gorgeous allium. People always comment on allium when they see them in the garden, planted in mass, of course. And the same is true for daffodils in the spring. They're hard to beat. The deer don't like either of those bulbs. So they're left alone. They're great performers. So why not? That's what I ended up going with this year. All right, we're in the home stretch. Number 26 is something I do every year to a few of my fountains that are on my property just to get them ready for the holidays. So what I'll do is I'll have a fountain that has a large basin. I may or may not take the top off and just let it be a big open basin. But the first thing I'll do is I'll line the bottom with fur. Now, often I'm getting this fur from an old fur coat that I found at a Goodwill or a thrift store, some type of salvage, and I'll line the basin with fur, and then you can fill it very simply with pine cones, add some antlers. I have this really adorable resin deer. I like to nestle in there, kind of like he's in his own little bed. But the point is that that fur coat provides such a wonderful layer, a very rich, softening, inviting layer to something like an outdoor hardscape like a fountain. I've even done it in a large container that I've had on my porch sometimes. I'll line that with fur. That looks really festive during the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays. I like to take old sweaters and plaid shirts and I'll chop the arms off and then I scrunch them up over the outside of terracotta pots and make some terracotta cozies essentially with the arms and the sleeves of these sweaters. That looks super adorable. Then I just keep them from falling down by tying twine around the top. That looks great. Number 28 is something I love doing as well, and this will usually last me through the holidays, but I'll make a cash pot, which is a beautiful container that does not have drainage, and oftentimes I'm using old crystal bowls, and what I'll do is I'll either put a container inside the crystal bowl, the container will have drainage, the crystal bowl of course does not, so that works well. Otherwise, I will line the bottom of the crystal bowl with layers of charcoal and gravel to help process some of the extra water as it drains down. And then what I do is I fill the top 
with the annual succulents, succulents that will not winter over here in Minnesota, but definitely succulents that will live in the house. They'll survive for another couple of months before they start to get super leggy or start to shrivel up and die just from the lack of sunlight. So plotting up those outdoor succulents, creating some cheery pot displays indoors, I love doing that. And I love dressing them up in some type of crystal bowl. That looks great on my buffet if I'm doing some type of holiday serving line or even on the kitchen table, something simple like that. Number 29 for me this year is I want to do some type of fern terrarium. So I brought in some of my maidenhair ferns and I'm creating an indoor terrarium. Ferns, of course, love that. So I'm going to give that a try. And then there was a post I saw that was for a Jack in the Beanstalk terrarium. And what you do here is you put a rope at the top of the terrarium and let it dangle down. And then if you plant a vine in the terrarium or some type of climber, they'll oftentimes just climb around the rope. And the rope, of course, can act as a moisture wick. So that attracts the plant growth as well. So I'll be giving that a try. And then finally, the last thing on my punch list was to really get set for the holidays. And then, of course, after the holidays, it's getting set for spring. So I got my pots put together as far as a good base layer for both the holidays and my Easter pots that I want on my front porch. Those are already set to go. I'm really tickled that I got that done. I went through my seasonal area in the garage and went through all of my artificial greenery. I got all of that organized with zip ties, and then I hung it in my garage. So if you can imagine a clothing rack that's very up high in the ceiling, and then all the different greeneries are zip tied together, and they're hanging on hooks from this clothing rack. I'm really tickled with that. Makes it very easy to pick and choose what I want to use outside. And then the last thing I did to get ready for setting the porch for the holidays and into spring is I went through and strategically added cup hooks where I needed them. So especially for the garlands over the holidays, just having the cup hooks in place, knowing that they're perfectly positioned so that the garlands have an even distribution as they go along the railing on the porch Anyway, it's probably the most ready I've ever been for the holidays outside. So I'm really tickled about that. One of my last jobs in the garden is, of course, cutting back my red twig dogwood and then bundling that together so that it's ready for those Christmas containers, those holiday containers. And that's it. My tips for a fantastic finale for your garden or how to get your 2018 garden going. I hope you enjoyed my walkthrough of my final punch list. I hope it inspired you to think about the way you want to wrap up your garden this year and how you want to set yourself up for success in next year's garden. And if you're somewhere where there's not impending snow coming, I hope you have plenty of time to get all of your garden tasks done before winter is here to stay. So just make sure that you're not trying to take on too many tasks that you get overwhelmed or discouraged. Just do a little bit at a time 
and pretty soon they just become part of your fall master plan where you don't even have to think about them. You know that they're just part of what you do in the fall to get ready for next year. Just a reminder, I'll have all of the information that I shared on the show today over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. Just click on podcast and you'll be able to access today's show. I'm so thankful to my team at Podfly Productions. I want to thank my editor and project manager, Eric Begay, and my copywriter, Ein Kadena. I'd also like to thank the women who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois, and she works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport, she's the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager at American Beauty's Native Plants. And she was featured on episode 553, where we talked all about incorporating more native plants into your landscape. I sign off today with this question. What needs to be added to your final punch list? to help you have a fantastic finale in your 2017 garden. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.